Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Donald Friedman, a licensed professional engineer with 30 years of experience as a structural engineer and also as a forensic engineer. Don is a founder of Old Structures Engineering, and he's also taught at the Pratt Institute and various other places, including Columbia University. He's presented at conferences, he's authored numerous articles, and written five books related to construction, renovation, and engineering. One of those books is An Engineer's Work at the World Trade Center, published in 2002, which tells of his experience working as an engineer at the World Trade Center site after 9-11. I talk with him about how his experience at the World Trade Center and his knowledge of engineering intersects with the world of conspiracy theories. Okay, right. Well, well. First of all, thanks again for doing this. This is uh, this is very good. Thanks for making the time. You're welcome. You are the author of the book, uh, "An Engineer's Work at the World Trade Center," which you published in 2002, which details your experience working as an engineer at the World Trade Center site. How did that actually start? Can you can you say how you actually got onto the site? Like, you know, what what happened and how you were assigned there. At that time, I was an employee of Thornton Tomasetti Engineers. I, I was an associate, and I was the director of historic preservation for the company. And as my understanding of it is that on the afternoon of September 11, 2001, uh, New York City um, hired Thornton Tomasetti uh, to coordinate the engineering work that would be required for cleanup. Um, basically, the city doesn't have enough structural engineers to do the job, and they all have their regular work to do. So yeah. if, if all of them were, uh, were on site, nothing else would be happening. So uh, we were, all, all of the employees in the Thornton Thomas City, New York office were informed that afternoon that uh, if we agreed to it, it was voluntarily, voluntary, um, we would be going to the site the next day, the 12th. And I volunteered. The way it eventually was organized, it took a few days for this to solidify, was that there were, at any given moment, five teams on site. There was one more or less stationed at each of the four corners of the site, which is a Mm -hmm. slightly skewed trapezoid. And my team was roving around uh, looking for old buildings. So there are a number of historic landmarks near the site uh, and a few buildings that are not landmarks but are not modern structure. since that's my specialty, okay, uh, we were going to be doing working on that. Um, so, starting on the twelfth, uh, I was down there as part of that effort. I was there for nine, I believe, it's nine days in a row at the beginning, and then every third or fourth day afterwards uh, into November. Yeah, my understanding of what an engineer does is basically that you are studying a structure to determine the loads on that structure and to make sure that structure can support the loads and you know any additional loads that might come along and then design modifications or additional structures if needed uh, to support those loads basically is that kind of a good kind of overview of what an engineer does it's certainly a big piece of it if you work primarily with existing buildings as i do the beginning of almost every project is an investigation of the existing building uh, if we have drawings, we need to see that they're correct. And if we, most of the time we don't have drawings, we need to figure out what the structural systems are. Uh, and whether we have drawings or not, there's always the question of, well, what's the condition of the existing building? Because all materials age and gradually fall apart. So mm-hmm. uh, just because a building is standing doesn't mean that it, all of the structure is in good condition. 
Right, yeah, like, uh, uh, I know in my apartment, we got a lot of termites taking out structural beams and we had to bring, <laughs> bringing an engineer to add on a, an extra steel beam. So you mentioned you do forensic engineering as well. Is that kind of like what you're talking about there, I examining building, or is, or is that like examining when something collapses? Forensic engineering is most often trying to figure out the, the reason for a collapse and uh, the court system being what it is, who's responsible, okay, if anybody. Yeah. Um, some things are truly accidents, some things are truly unavoidable, but very often um, somebody has somehow made an error that led to a, a collapse. So you would do a study and maybe get called as an expert witness in a in litigation? Yes. It's not the main focus of my work. Right. Yeah, yeah. I do sometimes, yes. So when you, when you first arrived there, one of the things that you know, struck me in the book, and I think struck a lot of people who were at the site, was that the, the contents of the buildings, <clears throat> like the things like desks and uh, things like that, uh, had largely vanished. And you, know, you, you see these, these large beams and these big chunks of concrete and lots of dust, but you know, a lot of the structure had, had actually, actually vanished. This is something that people point to sometimes as being like evidence of something, like there must have been some kind of explosives in the building. Was this something that you know, struck you at the time as being inexplicable, or did it you know, kind of make sense to you at the time? It was surprising, but I, I, when I'm talking about what I saw on site, I should, or, or my thoughts on site, I should mention that um, you know, I was talking to other engineers that I know pretty much the whole time. So I can't necessarily say that everything I say is, is something I thought of first. A lot of times it's sort of part of a group conversation, and I'm just reporting it to you now. Okay. Um, what became pretty clear after the first day on site was that the contents of uh, World Trade Center 1 and 2 had been pulverized. Anything that could break was broken. So what survived the collapse, the collapses, was ductile metal. So you saw pieces of steel you saw, we, we, I saw once a huge pile of elevator cable that must mm. have come from one of the upper shafts. And, what's, and the other thing that survived was paper. Because if you, if you think about an office building, most of the volume of space on the inside is air. Uh -huh. And as the floors pancake down, that air has to go somewhere and it goes out. So loose paper that was sitting on, on somebody's desk got blown out, outwards as the force pancaked down. And as a result, there was paper all over the place on top of this or mixed in with this very thick layer of dust that was pulverized concrete and gypsum board, ceiling tiles, things like that, cubicles. Yeah. Um, along with this, the other thing that got pulverized were bodies. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there, that's why they had to resort to DNA testing in order to uh, identify bodies because you know, something like dental records was, was hopeless because wow. there weren't big enough pieces of bodies intact. I don't think anybody's claiming 3,000 people vanished. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite amazing to think of. And when you, when you got there, when you first got to the site, what were the first engineering tasks that needed doing on the site? Um, on the 12th, so if you think about it, everybody knew three large buildings collapsed. Everybody knew a number of smaller buildings were hit by rubble, hit by debris, um, but nobody knew how, you know, did debris hit buildings a block away, two blocks mm -hmm. away? There's no way to tell. So what was the only thing engineers were doing on the 12th 
was looking at the buildings that served the perimeter of the site. And the original perimeter was quite large. It went two blocks to the east. So it went a block east of Broadway, for example, at which point you're, I don't know, uh, 200 yards from the site. Right. But if you think about it, that is, you know, less than the height of the towers. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, it's not inconceivable something could have gone that far. So what we were all doing was investigating, um, we were basically going up on the roofs of, the, of buildings, and there, was just, there, were, there were, I think, something like four or 500 buildings checked, going up on the roof to see if there was any sign that something had hit. And, for example, the post office that's north of the, of the site, they found uh, the engine of one, an engine from one of the planes on the roof of the uh-huh. post office. So, uh, obviously, debris had moved around a bit. And, and uh, it, you know, if you have enough people and you do it methodically, we went through a lot of buildings on the 12th and on the 13th. So that was that was the first engineering task. That was, there were basically two groups of uh, people from Thornton Tomasetti. There was one group doing site work, which is where I was pretty much the whole time, and the other group was um, checking where it was safe to put cranes because it was obvious the cranes were going to be needed to lift the heavier pieces of debris. Yeah, so that was quite a big part of the uh, well, not big part of the book, but you talked about it a lot, like the uh, the unusually large cranes that they had there. Now, you talk about kind of going. You, know, you started at the perimeter, uh, you know, the furthest extents of the of the damage. Uh, how would you characterize like what was actually at the perimeter in terms of what was falling? You said you mentioned an engine, but that's obviously something that kind of shot out as the plane shot out. So, like, would yeah. it be like exterior columns and the cladding? Uh, of those columns uh, i i didn't see anything like that what i saw at the so i, I only saw the buildings i checked okay. and i was on maiden lane east of broadway and, and some and a couple of blocks close by which are quite far from the site and i think perhaps more importantly they're to the east of the site and the planes that hit one was traveling north one was traveling south so any debris spread would not be likely to head east so what I saw on the roofs was the, uh, the lightweight debris, which is to say dust and a little bit of paper. Uh, you know, kind of moving further in towards the middle of the site, you would see like start to see columns and beams and things. Uh, so one of the things that really struck me in, in the book, which I mentioned in the email, was your description of the core columns and how they had kind of snapped apart at the seams. This is something that yeah. this is something you observed quite a lot. Yes, the, the the steel from towers one and two really stayed within the footprint of the World Trade Center site. I mean, it went a little bit onto the surrounding streets, but it's just too heavy. It, it you know, the the force pushing it outwards mm. was just very small compared to gravity, and therefore it went more or less straight down. So you had to get up to the site, right up to the world the World Trade Center site itself, to see substantial amounts of steel. Um, the furthest pieces of steel I saw were the ones stuck into, um, I guess it would be three World Financial Center and 130 Liberty Street. Mm-hmm. So they had made it across West Street and across to the south side of the site. And that's, it's, not, it's not a negligible distance, but that's about the furthest I saw any steel. Yeah. Now, uh, like, I think a, a big part of why we get like, conspiracy theories about the collapses of the World Trade Center is that people don't understand 
how it could have collapsed. They think it's this incredibly strong structure uh, and they think it's just highly implausible that even if there was damage at the top, the progressive collapse would would go all the way to the bottom. Uh, is this something that, you know, when you, when you, you obviously you saw the original collapses, you know, on TV uh, and you were on the site and you saw the results, did you uh, fairly quickly come to some kind of idea in your mind about how you thought the, the building collapsed? Was this something you gave much thought to? I, I didn't give a lot of thought to a specific trigger for the collapse. What everybody on site knew about the, the towers one and two was that they had a relatively rigid exterior tube structure, a bunch of columns and sort of normal floors in the core and in between were very long span uh, trusses, which are much lighter weight than the beams that might ordinarily be used. All of the lateral rigidity of the buildings was in the exterior. So it's easy in a, in a case like that to see that once that no longer functions for whatever reason, one reason being a big gaping hole where a plane hit the building, uh, that the interior of the building is not going to be strong enough to stand up. If you had... The plane impact with no fire, if you can picture such a thing. The towers would have stood up, but they would have been extremely weak for lateral loading so that a 30 or 40 mile an hour wind might have been enough to, to bring them down. Wow. Because, the, again, the lateral system of the building was compromised by having a big section of it forcibly removed. The floor trusses were, for the most part, unrecognizable. They were just too weak, and they crumpled up as the buildings collapsed. The exterior, uh, the exterior columns are what made for a lot of the dramatic pictures that you saw in the news because they were assembled in sections. And for the most part, they, they failed at the joints between sections and a section would be three columns. So you, if you look at the original photographs afterwards, you see a lot of three columns in a row. Mm -hmm. That's a section of the original exterior and it broke apart at the splices. Well, where it joined the where it joined the neighboring sections. It's interesting. You mentioned like you know the the lateral load is uh, all on the exterior. Is that just talking about the wind load um, for the for the building, I suppose, and seismic loads? Uh, the buildings were built before New York City had earthquake uh, right. load as part of its requirements. Um, so it didn't come in until 1996. So uh, they were designed for wind. Uh, they were designed for wind under the 1968. Actually, I think under the 68 building code, they're old enough. They may have been designed under the 1938 building code, but I don't think so. Hmm. I believe they were designed under the 68 building code. The wind loads are somewhat lower than would be required today. Uh, not drastically so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just want to make sure I understand, like when you're talking about lateral loads, like, uh, like say if you were to remove it, delicately remove the exterior and the floors, and you were just left with the core, uh, would that core column be able to, uh, the, the core of the building, be self-supporting? It would be self-supporting for gravity, but it would basically be a house of cards. It would have very little lateral rigidity. Wow. So a wind load much less than the code-required wind load in 1968 or now would, would, would be enough to, to destroy that. So, yeah, it, the, 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 it's what's called a tube structure. It was invented mm -hmm. in the 60s. 
where you have closely spaced columns and beams at the, at the exterior of the building, and that serves as your lateral bracing. Um, John Hancock in Chicago is a tube structure. Uh, there are any number of them here in New York. Um, so it's, it's a, it was for a while um, sort of the, the, the in-vogue method of structural design for tall buildings. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense now. Like when uh, when you think about how it collapsed, like you talked about the floor trusses being all mangled. Uh, like you, there weren't really many recognizable floor trusses in the debris pile, and they essentially would have been stripped away by the falling uh, the falling mass of the building above, like in a very chaotic manner, and then just reduced uh, to rubble as they they went down. Yeah, they were just crushed. Some people think of um, the floors kind of pancaking. And then kind of neatly coming down like a like a like a I don't know like a house of cards just go bam 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 and then yeah. stacking up. But you, you're talking about the trusses being all just this mangled mess and just not not really stacked on top of each other. It depends where you are in the building. Um, so if you think about it, the collapse did not begin with the uppermost floors. It began at the floors that were most heavily weakened by fire, which were somewhat lower. And the top of the building sort of came down with the collapse and then itself sort of impacted the ground, impacted the rubble below. Each floor down, once the collapse starts, is getting a heavier impact than the one before. So by the time the second floor collapses, it's got the weight of 100 floors on its back. That's that's why things were so badly pulverized, because it it just the, the, the effect adds up as you come down the building. I did a incredibly crude calculation on this, just looking at the average floor height and it, and falling to the ground. Never minding the effect of fire, you know. Just if you just had 110 floors at the elevation they're at, and you let them fall, and that very crude calculation gave me a kinetic energy that is about 10 percent of the Hiroshima bomb. Wow. So yeah, things got destroyed. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a lot of energy. Did you do have similar thoughts about Building Seven? Or was that even kind of in your on your radar in terms of like you know how it had collapsed? Um, it was on my radar because it was a roadblock that I had to walk around all the time. Right. Uh, the thing is, I didn't think a great deal about it because I knew one thing that that had become public knowledge on the eleventh or on the twelfth which was that that building caught fire when the North Tower collapsed. When the North Tower collapsed, the fire department was very badly disorganized. A large number, well, a large number of firefighters were dead. A large number of officers were dead as well. And the dust in the air prevented their radios from working. Hmm. So the um, fire department upper, upper officers made the decision to not attempt to fight the fire in number seven because they believed that they would not be able to put it out. And what it would do is get a couple of more, a couple of hundred more firefighters killed for nothing. Yeah. I think it was the correct decision. Everyone I've spoken to thinks it was the correct decision. But what that means is what you have is an uncontrolled fire in a 40, 45, 47 story building, which is not something you see very often. Yeah, and you, you talk about uh, like examining the debris pile, or like usual experience of being there by the debris pile. And one thing you mentioned was uh, the fires, and this is another thing that uh, people get kind of suspicious about. And 
you know, you talk about how much how much actually flammable material there was in the building. Yeah. People think flammable material, you know, I'm looking around my office. People think flammable material is paper and, and books and things like that. The plastic that's used for furniture will burn. Mm. Carpeting burns. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that will burn in an office if you get them hot enough. And most of them are poisonous when they burn. You really right. don't want to be around burning plastic if you can avoid it. So when all that stuff gets trapped in a confined space, it's like, you know, an underground tire fire. It just, there's not enough oxygen for it to get burned hot and just burn itself out. So it just sort of smolders for a very long time. And it was a couple of months before the fires were finally out because there was all of this flammable material down in the cellar hole of the entire complex being fed a little bit of oxygen so the fire just kept going. And then it would occasionally flare up, I guess, when uh, it was exposed to oxygen, when the bits got uh, uncovered. Yes. And there were hoses at the site to deal with that. Right. You know, a big, a big like, uh, kind of conspiracy thing there is that the, they claim that there was molten steel, uh, liquid molten steel, uh, on the site in the, in the fires. Uh, did you ever hear of anything like that or see anything like that? Nope. The only place I ever saw anything that looked remotely like that was some of the video on before the collapses. And it was pretty clear that the, that, that the molten material was uh, aluminum from the facade, which uh, melts at a much lower temperature than steel. Um, I never heard... I never heard anybody talking about anything like molten steel on site. I never saw anything. I never saw any metal that showed signs of having melted. Hmm. I saw metal that was twisted and bent in all sorts of different shapes, but never anything that had melted. It's a different appearance. Yeah, and you had, you had been in you know all all parts of the the site. Like I th- think you you went down a hole in the street that would have been like kind of next to Building Seven, so you would have seen basically the, that, the yeah the bottom of the pile as it was well actually that hole led to a garage that um the area that we were in was almost untouched uh one the the, the south end of it was crushed but the port, part where we went down the hole it was um that was november already by the time that happened and uh it was you know here here's where people parked their cars on the morning of the of the 11th yeah uh, but no I, I i was all over immediately adjacent to collapsed steel and i never saw anything like that yeah and you i mean i i I imagine you wouldn't have seen things that uh looks like like evidence of explosives i mean i can feel kind of silly asking this but like is this something that was even on anybody's radar at the time were they thinking like that the that they would look at for evidence well, I mean, I think the conspiracy theory started pretty quickly. I remember hearing people saying, boy, that looked mm. just like a controlled demolition while I was still on site. Um, I, I, don't, I would not have recognized any, anything like that. I don't, think I, I don't think anybody would have been able to tell the difference necessarily unless right. they were uh, a specialist in, in, in bomb explosions. Um, you know, it's funny, we, as... One of the people at uh, Thornton Thomas said he had worked on this. 
um, they got involved later on with a lot of the litigation work, and I wasn't particularly involved with that, but I had been on site, so I was asked to review certain photographs and certain videos uh, from my recollection of those areas. And I remember people saying that the way that you saw debris and smoke moving outwards during the collapses was evidence of controlled demolition. And that's what the effect I was talking to you about before, where the air inside between two floors has nowhere to go but out, radially outwards, yeah. as the building pancakes. So, you know, something that was pointed to as evidence of explosion, of an explosion had a much simpler explanation. Yeah, I've, I've seen that before. They describe it as a, a pyroclastic flow because of you get similar dust clouds in uh, volcanic explosions, and they think this somehow indicates yeah. it must have been an explosion. But if you look at you know, building collapses that just collapse by, by, you know, without explosives, you get this kind of similar dust cloud or things like rock falls and things like that. You get the exact same cloud of dust because as you say, it's the air being displaced. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that people point to is the columns that were cut after the, uh, you know, during the cleanup, they did a lot of removal of the, you know, the columns that were still standing. So they had to cut them. And uh, sometimes mm -hmm. they, they would cut them at an angle and people claim that you would never cut a column at an angle. Uh, do you have any you know, thoughts about you know, why, why the columns were cut at an angle during cleanup? Because, uh, because of the, the pile of debris. Um, I, I want to emphasize that as of the 11th, as of the, the evening of the 11th, there was nothing left of one and two that resembled a building in any way. It's not like there was a building with a big pile of stuff on top of it. Mm -hmm. There was nothing left that looked like a building. I, the description that I've used for this is pickup sticks. It was just this random distribution of the columns that had survived. Some of them were straight, some of them were not. Uh, and they were in every pointing in every possible direction. They were cut in an angle. Basically, so there were cranes at the perimeter trying to pick up these pieces of steel that are tangled in with each other and that are at all different angles, and they cut them wherever they needed to cut them to get a piece free to move it out. Right. I, the, the, if you're demolishing a building, you would never cut a column at an angle because it's, you're taking a building down, and you want to have things continue to function as you come down floor by floor. When you're dealing with a pile of debris, it's a different situation. You 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 looked at a lot of the other the damage to other buildings, like in particular, like one that stands out is one thirty Liberty, uh, which had this huge gash in the front of it with a very large piece of the the facade, I believe, of the South Tower, in it. Yes, um, and that that had quite a bit of structural damage to it. Was there was there any danger uh, of collapse? Do you think from the uh, the of of that building? Was it ever in danger? The building as a whole, no, it wasn't. Um, 130 Liberty was, was uh, structurally anomalous in the opposite way of the World Trade Center. It was heavier than it needed to be. My understanding, it had been built by uh, Irving Trust Bank originally, um, which is long gone now, uh, as, a, as a place where they would have trading floors. And they didn't know how many trading floors they would have, where they're going to rent out space to people who would put in trading floors. And trading floors, in terms of structural design, are heavier than normal office space. So what they did was they designed the whole building for uh, literally twice the live load of a normal office building, 
that gave them maximum flexibility of what to do with it. And it had a traditional lateral load system. It didn't have a tube system. So the, the, having the gash on the, the north face did not significantly reduce its lateral stability. Right. So the building was dangerous because every single window was smashed. Pieces of the metal facade panels were loose. So it could kill somebody walking by by just dropping five pounds of debris onto them. Yeah. But the building as a whole was not unstable. So uh, I guess World Trade Center 7 was a similar distance away from the towers as uh, 130 Liberty. Not entirely sure, but you know, it was some distance away. So it, 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 it suffered similar kinds of damage. Uh, would there have been differences in the effects of the damage on Building 7 because of its different design versus 130 Liberty? I, I, sus- I, I don't know as a fact. I suspect okay. 130 Liberty was a stronger building than 7. Um, the biggest difference between them is, as far as I know, uh, there was not there was very little fire spread in 130 mm-hmm. Liberty. Um, it didn't the, the debris that hit it wasn't on fire. And for example, at seven, uh, the fires at the top floors were rather small and basically extinguished themselves because of they didn't spread, so they ran out of fuel. So fires at the lower floors that spread. So there may have been some small fires at 130 Liberty, but they didn't continue to burn yeah that's the big difference i believe between the two yeah buildings. yeah definitely well yeah you could see a huge amount of fire in uh, world trade center seven uh yeah another building is uh, one liberty plaza and it was interesting you wrote about this in the book is that there were a lot of rumors going around that one liberty plaza was going to collapse and you you went and looked at it and you, <laughs> you saw that it wasn't uh and then you kind of tried to Tamp down the rumors by spreading what you called uh, counter rumors. <laughs> yeah. um, that was uh, spreading the counter rumor was probably uh, me being um, at that time sort of on edge and and very tired. There's a, an optical illusion that anybody can perform with. You need a building about ten stories or more tall, and what you do is you walk right up to the building, get your belly touching it, and look up. And if you do that, it looks like the building is leaning over you. Hmm. Um, something to do with the way our eyes and brain function. And people were very on edge. Um, I think in part because of Seven World Trade Center more than the other two, because Seven World, given the extent of plane damage, it was shocking but not exactly unexpected that one and two would collapse. Seven didn't have that, and it was. I think it was sort of in people's heads, here's a building that didn't look so bad and it collapsed. Um, so every little thing got, every little thing got followed up. And I think people from Thornton Thomas City went up to the top on, of this, using the stairs of One Liberty, I don't know, four or five times looking for damage because somebody said, you know, it doesn't look right. And there was nothing wrong with the building. <laughs> Literally nothing right. wrong with it. Yeah. Um, so you know it was it was it, it's I, to me evidence that even people who deal with this stuff for a living get spooked and they they uh, you know you, you you see a pattern even when it's not there so the pattern was the building was near the site it's a tall building it collapsed mm-hmm. maybe one liberty's going to collapse collapse next yeah certainly i mean uh, yeah it's like all bets are off where on you know, after you've seen what you've seen that day because it's something no one's experienced before yeah, imagine your mind goes wild. 
Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the. Yeah, I sent you the the Hulsey report, which is this report uh, done by the University of Alaska, and I kind of yeah. uh, asked you for your your general impression uh, of it. How would you kind of characterize like what you've what you've seen of it so far? Well, I didn't find it very convincing. Is I guess the the best way to put it. I, I feel like they made a bunch of assumptions, some of which are not very well thought out. Um, they begin by saying that uh, you know they're not sure about the extent of, of the of the temperatures that were inside. Uh, again, this is a building that was on fire with no real attempt to put out the fire, no no attempt to fight it, um, no sign that the sprinklers functioned properly. Uh, fires get extremely hot. It's the reason that you're, you know, you're taught to stay down at the floor. Um, the fire at the ceiling in a, in a, in a case like this is going to be somewhere above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is enough to, to basically destroy structure. It doesn't melt the steel. It weakens it. And when the steel is weak, it will start to collapse. And in that report, they extensively modeled the building but they're assuming that all the members are present. And if fires a couple of floors away from the area they're looking had weakened beams that are bracing columns, then the frame wouldn't function the way that their model assumes it functions. Um, so I, I just, they did not seem to take this into account. And maybe they did, and it's not written up very well. I can't, I can't say for certain. Um, but uh, anytime I see that they're modeling the whole frame, but they're only talking about the effective temperature at the specific column they're looking at, um, I'm not so sure that that makes much sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think they they didn't really account for that. And when they were doing simulations, it seemed like they were just simply removing a section of a column and leaving the rest of the building uh, like untouched. That that method has a, actually has a long history to it. That mm -hmm. method has been used in other countries, and particularly in the UK, as a form of modeling for bomb blast right. since at least the 80s and maybe earlier than that. And it's actually in the New York City Building Code now in terms of resilience as one of the methods to check on the building's resilience is to remove key members. So that method makes sense but it's not a model of a specific event that you're trying to, to recreate. Yeah, it would make sense if you were modeling a bomb, like the, the, the 1993 World Trade Center uh, attacks. Yes. Well, just a bomb on one column. Even then, I suppose, there would have been a lot of force, uh, blast force on the, the floors and uh, beams around the column as well. So you know, you're still not getting an, an entirely accurate thing, but it gives you a, a baseline of, you know, if this column is taken out, what will happen? Uh, but but not entirely accurate. Uh, did did you look at the the video I made? Uh, kind of like looking into the the static versus dynamic uh, modeling that they did. No, I did not. I didn't, okay. I didn't have time for that. Yeah, no. It was just that uh, it seems like they they modeled it using a, using static analysis. And correct me if I'm wrong. A static analysis would be where uh, you're just measuring kind of the deformation of a building under a load, like you know, how much the, the, the members will, will deflect. And it's not really you know, something you would do for measuring an actual in-process collapse. It, it can be part of that 
analysis, but uh, yeah, you're correct that it's not sufficient. For uh, up until let's say the 1960s, tall building design was typically done only statically mm-hmm. uh, because it's a, a great deal of computation to, to do dynamic analysis. Uh, tall buildings, and particularly slender tall buildings, now regularly get uh, dynamic analysis as part of their original design. Um, I suspect there was some dynamic analysis at the World Trade Center, but I don't know. Uh, I, I've read uh, various interviews with Les Robertson took place after the 11th, and uh, it seems that it was a very thorough design. Uh, they did not make any decisions lightly, but uh, you can do you can do a lot with static analysis, but it has its limits. Yeah, they they push the static analysis uh, to the extent that they show the building tipping over, and it's at about 30, 40 degrees. And it seems like that's kind of, to me, like uh, an inappropriate use of static analysis because the building is actually moving at that point. If a building has tipped over uh, 40 degrees, then can you still say that static analysis is valid for that situation? Well, I I don't think it's a realistic model. If you tip one of these buildings 40 degrees, you're going to have all sorts of secondary effects that are not part of a normal static analysis. Um, If a building is tipped over like that, then gravity load is causing bending in in the building in a way that it doesn't when the building is vertical. Um, I don't know how you're going to take that into account in a static analysis unless you do a series of such analyses at sort of every angle of tilt, which seems uh, to not be what they did. Yeah, because I mean, static analysis kind of ignores the time component. Yes, and impact. Yeah, yeah. So, like the momentum of things and things hitting other things, uh, and you know, if a building starts to tip, it's going to continue to tip. It's not just a, a static force. Um, I think that they did. They tried to replicate NIST's analysis, and they did it by uh, removing a line of three columns and then removing another set of three columns, and then things started to uh, fail progressively. Like all the columns, the loads were transferred to the other columns, and they failed. Uh, but they kind of use this to make it seem like the the building would actually tip over and i think to do that they would have to know at what time the columns failed because if they they all failed within half a second or within two or three seconds the building wouldn't actually have the time to tip over and so you couldn't really say it had tipped over but uh yeah i think there's a lot of questions around around their report and that type of thing a quick question like uh in Professor Hulse's presentation that he gave, he mentioned that the uh, the building had been evacuated and there wouldn't be a live load of the people within the building. And that would make a difference to the calculations. Do you think that would actually make a significant difference, the people being evacuated out of the building? Um, normal office space, people are a real but part of the load but well under half normal office space furniture and papers and contents um weighs more than people yeah uh so i you know yes the building was somewhat lighter because the loads were somewhat lighter because of that yeah it's getting into the details of the analysis and, and and i'm not sure either that he knows or that i know exactly what NIST did in their analysis yeah 
Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't remember the live load being mentioned in 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 this analysis. Well, it's the it's not just the people; it's the floors themselves, which are the the mass of the building. Uh, but they're not they're not live load; they're just they're dead load, but they're not moving. Yeah. But uh, so, in, in kind of a general thing, kind of uh, closing up here, like it's it's very hard um, to get people to talk about this type of thing. Uh, you're you're an engineer you're an expert on, the, on this these type of things and you you were on the site so it's great you have this really great perspective on it but i find it very hard to get people like engineers or, or scientists to talk about uh, conspiracy theories uh what's what's your sense about how 9-11 conspiracy theories are viewed within the engineering community i've never met a structural engineer a practicing structural engineer who believes them. That doesn't mean that those such people don't exist. I'm sure they do. But um, you would think that uh, if there was something funny about what happened here, that engineers in New York would be aware of it. And there's really no sign that anybody here uh, believes believes that kind of theory. It, it is sort of fascinating to me that uh, so much of the uh, the, the conspiracy theory comes from people who are quite far away uh, mm. and not nece- don't necessarily spend a lot of time dealing with uh, with tall buildings and don't necessarily actual tall buildings as opposed to theory and don't necessarily spend a lot of time dealing with uh, tall buildings that uh, have real life problems. Um, for example, uh, the World Trade Center was built with asbestos fireproofing and. No, not not number seven. Numbers one and two, mm-hmm. and that was outlawed not very long after the buildings were completed. And the way that the poor authority, which owned the buildings, was dealing with it was when a floor came empty, they stripped it out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was considered to be, you know, it's it's not it's, people are not being exposed if it's hidden in the ceiling space. But anytime there was going to be demolition work, then the whole floor was was uh, was abated. And the new fireproofing that was used in the late 70s and the 80s um, turns out had a problem with adhering to steel. So they had, the asbestos may have been pretty close to 100% gone by 2001, but there were a number of floors that had uh, fireproofing that worked great if everything was static. But of course, the impact of the buildings caused the impact of the airplanes caused both buildings to move much more than normal movement, and it came suddenly. It's not like a wind that builds up; it was a, a sharp impact. And uh, it's quite likely that a lot of fireproofing simply fell off of the floor trusses when that happened. Um, which is something that you know, this problem is known. No way to ever know the extent of what actually happened, right? Yeah. Somebody would have had to inspect the building in between the impact and the collapse to know yeah. exactly what, what had happened. So the ability of the buildings to withstand fire may have been significantly reduced, but we don't know how much. Um, and when people say, oh, you know, how could this happen? Well, this is a real-life kind of problem. In a computer frame analysis, you say, okay, the temperature is this. You know, it's the temperature curve is going to look like this as the steel heats up. But maybe that's not accurate. And it doesn't take that much 
unprotected steel failing in a fire to cause a failure in a building like this because, again, all the lateral resistance was in the perimeter and the floors were lightweight trusses. Mm-hmm. So uh, you could easily have a sort of a combination of effects not foreseen. Um, conspiracy theories tend to happen because something happens that people don't expect and they don't, they don't, they don't want to accept that something could happen that, that no one predicted. I don't know. Again, the engineers I know, not a single one of us said that these buildings were going to pancake. But uh, in retrospect, it's not very surprising. So mm-hmm. people don't like that combination, something that's unexpected and horrible. Yeah. Do you, do you ever meet conspiracy theorists, uh, like in real life, and uh, you know, have to explain things to them? In, in person, no. Yeah. In person, no. I have occasionally come across them online, and I simply walk away. Right. I'm not interested in it. Uh, what I always recommend, to, I've had friends say, you know, I've, this guy is t- talk, telling me this about the World Trade Center. What should I tell him? And actually, one of the best debunkings of the conspiracy theory was from Popular Mechanics. They put out mm-hmm. a very nice little book explaining why all of the common ex- conspiracy theories were wrong. And I recommend that to people. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's a good book. Although, of course, they've got excuses around that now. So it just keeps going on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you very much for for talking to me. I mean, now you, you say like you, you wouldn't talk to conspiracy theorists. Uh, but, you know, this, this topic, I think, you know, I really appreciate getting your perspective on it. And I wish I could get more engineers to uh, to kind of weigh in. Uh, on what they think about the whole the whole topic, even if it's just to say that they think it's ridiculous, because I think there's, there's this idea that all these engineers are cowering in the wings because they don't want to talk about it because it's too scary. When I think really it's more like they don't want to talk about it because it's because it's so ridiculous. I think that's more likely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's great. That was uh, very very interesting. Do you have any anything you want to add? Any final words? Uh, you know, I, I, building code bodies, the IB, the ICC, which writes the international building code, which is the, the base building code for the whole country, the committees here in New York that write the New York version of the IBC really have taken this stuff into account over the last 18 years. And it's sort of, it's frustrating that the engineering community is trying to learn from what failed. And there are people, you know, the conspiracy theorists who are basically saying, well, that lesson doesn't mean anything because that's not what happened. Engineer, engineering advances by studying failure. <laughs> that, that's, that's been true since structural engineering has existed. You look at what went wrong last time and you try to improve on it. That's what engineers are doing right now. Yeah, and uh, they're you know, basing it on the reality of the situation rather than the, the conspiracy theories. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.